Good to see all of you here this morning. Um, we've got a good amount of ground to cover here. Um, so I want to get going here somewhat quickly. Uh, but one thing that we have talked about in this series thus far is how the Old Testament is our greatest tool for understanding revelation. Thank you. Um, and the reason so many people struggle with understanding the book of Revelation is because of a lack of familiarity with the Old Testament. And today we get the opportunity, we're going to explicitly go to the Old Testament. It's going to be really helpful, hopefully, for us as we look at Revelation chapter 17. Another thing about Revelation 17 is so often there's all these symbolic things that we're encountering in this book, but today we, it's just going to straight up tell us uh, some answers to some of these symbolic realities that we're encountering. So I want to read Revelation 17 for us, and then we will jump into this. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast." They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city 
that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Let's pray. God, thank you for this chapter, though maybe some of us have already checked out because it seems really confusing. I ask that you would please help us to understand it, but we want much more than understanding. God, I pray that you would change us. You would build our faith in Jesus. I pray that the gospel would be beautiful, far more beautiful than this woman, this prostitute, is depicted as being. And so would you do that in these moments together? In your name I pray. Amen. So, um, I kind of say every once in a while when we bump into uh, verses, chapters like this, it just kind of preaches itself, right? Like we don't really need to say anything about it, sarcastically. So, I think verse 9 provides the best description of this chapter. This calls for a mind with wisdom. That is true. This calls for a mind with wisdom, as does much of Revelation. Okay, what I want to do here is I want to start with just an, a high-level summary for what's going on in this chapter. So we have a woman, a great prostitute, who is depicted as engaging in many indecent acts with the most powerful players or kings in the world. This woman is beautiful. John, we find John here marveling at her. But despite her beauty, her works are sickening and repulsive. This woman is also depicted as being aligned with the beast. This is a beast that we encountered back in chapter 13 of Revelation. The beast is clearly a type of antichrist. He is opposing Jesus in every way. John describes the beast as one who was and is not and is to come. And this is where we see kind of the anti-nature of him versus Jesus. Jesus told of himself in Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come. The beast, as we have seen previously in the book of Revelation, is a deceiver and is only out for himself. He seeks to be a counterfeit Jesus. And that's what he's doing here as he's being described in this way. Ultimately, though, this beast is going to destroy the prostitute. He used her as long as she was useful. Then he made her or left her desolate and naked. And all of this is transpiring to help us see the evilness of evil. It is destructive. Evil is destructive. It is ugly. But ultimately, Jesus the Lamb will conquer, for he is the Lord of Lords, and he is the King of Kings. Okay, so a vital question we need to answer today is, who is the woman? Who is the woman? So a few observations here. First of all, she is described as a great prostitute. Okay, so a prostitute is someone who engages in sexual activity for payment. So this is a great prostitute. This woman is described as committing sexual immorality with the kings of the earth. And we're going to explain what that's talking about here in just a bit. It says this woman also was seated on many waters. And verse 15 answers what is meant by this. In verse 15 we read, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated 
our peoples and multitudes and nations and language. So what's being communicated here is the fact that this woman and her influence is spread throughout the whole world. She is touching everyone and everything worldwide. Okay, so even in this description, I hope what you are seeing is that this woman is not a literal woman. Okay? This is a symbolic picture being given to us. What is being described with the woman is much bigger than a prostitute and sexual immorality, though it does include that. What we should reflexively do, as I've been trying to teach us throughout this series, is begin to think about the rest of the Bible. How do these images pop up in other parts of the Bible? What do they teach us in other parts of the Bible? And so we're going to go to the Old Testament and a book called Hosea. This is a great place to go to understand this idea of prostitutes. So in the the Old Testament book of Hosea, there is a prophet named Hosea. Okay, And God tells his prophet to go and to marry a prostitute. You've got to think when, when Hosea hears this, he's got to be like, come again? Like, what was that? And that's what God told him to do. So Hosea goes and he marries a prostitute. But then they have children as well. And to make this even more confusing, God tells Hosea to name his children seemingly insulting names. And what, one of the names of his children was, Not My People. He called his child, not my people. Seems really cruel to do this. Later on, we come to find out that Hosea's wife, whose name is Gomer, who he rescued from this life of sin, actually went back to her old way of life. She begins to prostitute herself out again. We look at this, and... and We think God must be cruel to carry all of this out, to to force someone into doing this. But we've got to understand God has greater priorities. We, We look at the physical realities, right? But what we see throughout the Bible is that God is continuously prioritizing the spiritual reality over the physical. It doesn't mean he doesn't care about the physical reality. He clearly does because he enters into it with us. But far and above the physical reality, he cares about our spiritual reality. And so we see what God is doing in and through Hosea is he's providing a picture of himself. We look at Hosea and we think he lives this tortured life. Man, the fact that first he would have to go marry a prostitute, but then that prostitute goes and does this very thing, leaves him and goes back to this old way of life. Hosea is a picture of a faithful husband. Gomer, his wife, is a picture of an unfaithful bride. More specifically, Gomer is a picture of God's people, of Israel. She is loved. She is redeemed by a faithful husband. husband. Yet she goes back to selling herself out to other men. So what this is telling us in a spiritual reality, similarly, Israel, God's people kept going back to other gods. They kept going back to other idols. 
selling themselves to these realities. And despite all of this, God continues to lovingly pursue those who are his own. Now, the overarching depiction throughout the Bible is the dirtiness of prostitutes. They are unclean. And what becomes really clear to those reading the Bible is that we, as followers of Jesus, are not supposed to be like prostitutes. We're not supposed to chase after the things that prostitutes are engaged in. And so what church folk oftentimes do with this then is they they like to point out how nasty those sinners are who engage in such ugly activities. And so what we might tend to do is distance ourselves from those prostitute-like people. We feel superior to them. But then something really shocking happens in the New Testament as Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus comes for prostitutes. Not only that, he comes to prostitutes. He dines with them. He gets close and lets them get close to him. He loves them. He even saves them. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what do we do with all of this? We're reading about this in Revelation 17. What do we do with all of this? Well, for one, we're intended to come to the realization that prostitutes and sexual immorality are a symbol for something. And what they're symbolizing is spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Something every person is guilty of. It depicts how we worship other things. How we worship idols. How we run to these things other than Jesus. And where this gets in our face is the realization that we are the prostitute. You are the prostitute. I am the prostitute. We have committed spiritual infidelity. We have prostituted ourselves out to sin. We need to be saved, just like the prostitutes we read about in the Bible. And and this is the biblical image for sin that we get over and over, that God comes to unfaithful people and he rescues them out of sin. He loves the unlovable. And still, what we do is we still, you've done it this week, I've done it this week, we've run back to other lesser loves. We have essentially climbed back into bed with sin. We've done the very same thing as those who maybe we feel uh, we're better than, we're superior to, or we're told at times maybe that we're better than. We've done the very same thing as them. Now, if this were to happen within the context of a marriage, this would likely devastate us and or send us into a fury of rage. This woman in Revelation 17 is a picture of sin and evil and its sway in and over our lives. 
And so let's look at some of the descriptions we get about this woman. It says, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. This woman is a picture of pleasure. She's a picture of comfort, a picture of opulence. These are things we're drawn to. She's also beautiful, so much so that John found himself marveling at her. This one who's been transported into the throne room, who God is giving these visions to, he finds himself marveling at this woman. This is the repeated picture of sin that we get. It's attractive to us. It is something that we want. And yet, when we look inside that golden cup, what we find are abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. We find ugliness, repulsion, messiness, the evilness of evil. It it says in in the next verse, the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints. She was drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She hated followers of Jesus. And so we get this picture here. Sin looks good, but it's going to disgust us. Sin looks good, but it ultimately will disgust us. We all tend to downplay our personal sin, our draw towards it. This graphic depiction of sin is given to shake us into a realization of the horror of our sin. Your sin However big or small you might think it is, all of your sin, all of my sin is like us climbing into bed with Satan. It's part of the picture that we're getting here. And part of the intent here is that we would get to the point where we are repulsed by our sin. Where we would hate our sin. Those things that entice us and attract us. God's desire is that they would repulse us. Where are you at this morning with this? What are those things that are drawing you in? That look really good to you? That you keep buying into the lie that that this thing will ultimately give you what you're looking for? But it can't. God's really kind in giving us these pictures. He warns us. He he wants us to understand that many of those things that draw the attention of our eye will ultimately disgust us. This is his kindness to us. So the woman is a picture of sin, a picture of spiritual adultery, a a spiritual infidelity. She is a picture of both enticement as well as disappointment. She displays the reality of how humanity marvels at many things, what we would call idols, that only result in disappointment and ultimately our destruction. She's a warning to us because the attractiveness of the woman or of evil is something that has lured all people throughout history. And and even today, throughout this upcoming week, you are going to be lured towards sin. You will. As long as we're walking on this earth, we will. 
And so God's trying to prepare us, saying, to follow after that woman, to follow after that thing, leads to destruction. So don't do it. Okay, so then we see this woman is connected, and I think unsurprisingly, she's connected to the beast that we read about in Revelation 13. So this is the beast that Satan, when we read back in chapters 12 and 13, Satan was described as a great red dragon. Okay, that was the symbolic picture that we were given. But this great red dragon then gave his power and his throne and great authority to this beast. This beast that the woman we see here now is sitting upon. Okay, so... Basically, this woman is riding this beast throughout the world to advance the beast and the dragon's agenda. Okay, quick aside here. I want to stop and talk about verses 7 to 14 because we have this section that is really confusing as it talks about the seven heads and the ten horns of the beast and how this then relates to the kings of the earth. As I noted earlier, the beast is described to show us again how he is a counterfeit Jesus. Okay, so when we're reading about the heads and the horns, we we covered earlier in the book of Revelation how this is connecting to Jesus. Okay, so this is a picture of counterfeit Jesus. But then what we also see here are many postulations. So so if you go and you read commentaries and so so forth, there are so many ideas about what's being talked about here. And, and many are going to make postulations as to who the kings are. Okay? Some are going to point out specific kings throughout history. So say, you know, this one's talking about uh, the kings in the Roman Empire, and then we're going to move on in history and talk about these other kings and so forth. And, and they're trying to connect to these specific kings. Others are going to point to kind of kings of anti-Christian influence and culture. So maybe like a king of arts or a king of government, a king of education, a king of leisure, and, and so on and so forth. I don't find a lot of value in trying to connect specific kings here, because I, I think the picture that's being constructed for us is much more of an ultimate picture. And so the best way to look at this is in an ultimate sense. So there are powers. There are powers, past, present, and future in every facet of society that opposed Jesus. And what we're reading about here in Revelation, in the chapters surrounding Revelation 17, is how we're building toward this climactic end when these forces will come together and they are going to make war on the Lamb. But, but even the fact that they're coming together, that they're uniting, it says in verse 13 that they are of one mind... This is remarkable because the whole agenda of Satan is it's ultimately going to destroy itself, right? So, but somehow, some way, by God's design, they're coming together. They're uniting to make war against the Lamb. And we know from throughout Revelation, the Lamb is a reference to Jesus. But what we see here is this war against the Lamb will fail. And the Lamb will conquer them. And so we can understand when we look out at the reality of our world, this world is broken. This world is harsh. 
We feel that in many different ways, the suffering, the hardship of this world. And yet, this ultimate picture that we're being given is Jesus will conquer. Jesus will overcome. And this is something we need to preach to ourselves day in and day out, whether it's small things that we're dealing with or really big things that we're dealing with. Jesus will conquer. This is given to us as a reminder, as hope for us as we walk through our everyday Okay, so I want to switch gears here a bit and focus in on a picture that's given to us in verse 16. We have this woman who has impacted the peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And I mentioned that essentially she has held sway over the whole world. And she is sitting on this beast that has been given immense power throughout the world and throughout all of history. But we come to verse 16 and we see a revealing picture of the kingdom of evil. It says, the ten horns, so essentially this is talking about the kings of the earth, the powerful on the earth, okay? They and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. You hear that? What's being described here? is pure hatred, complete disregard for life. The idea here is use and abuse and discard. Use and abuse and discard. The kings, those in power, got what they wanted from the woman, and then they discarded her. This is who Satan is. This is his M.O., I'm going to give you something that you think you want. I'm going to let you enjoy it. And I'm going to kill you. I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to make you suffer. This is what Satan does. We just want to be real upfront, real clear about Satan's agenda. This is what he does. This made me think this past week as I was just thinking through this and spending some time noodling all of this. It's made me think of the Me Too movement. And what happened a number of years ago, how, how women began to find their voice and be able to acknowledge publicly things that had been done to them. To share the evil that had been committed against them. And there were many women who maybe have more public platforms that began to share their stories. Stories that up to that point they felt like they could not share. So there were women seeking jobs and fame, sharing stories about being forced by men to engage in activity that was criminal. And one of the people who kind of became a lightning rod was Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein, however you pronounce his name, that that his name became kind of a, or he became a focal point in all of this. But I went back and I read some of the stories this past week that women shared, and they were just nauseating, some of the things that women had to encounter and go through. But it fit this phrase really well. Women were used and abused. They were pawns for pleasure, and then they were discarded because they no longer held any value. 
This is pure wickedness. The wickedness in this world is pervasive. It is saddening. And as I was thinking about this picture of evil in verse 16, I was struck by how God is the one oftentimes charged as being guilty of this type of behavior. People will say, God is all-powerful. He must be sitting back pulling these cosmic strings. He's the one who is responsible for causing all of the suffering that we see and encounter in this world. The one who came to suffer and die, to save us from this wretched world, is accused of being Satan. This is the lie that Satan has been repeatedly whispering into ears for centuries, for millennia, the fact that God is evil. He simply wants to turn things upside down. God is not evil. Satan is. And we're getting a real stark picture here in Revelation 17. I want to personalize the dynamic in verse 16 for us because I think it's easy for us to look out there, right? And we can look at other people who maybe are guilty. We can look at Harvey and we can say, ah, oh, he's the one who's really guilty of this type of behavior. And, and we can think the problem is separate from us, but it's not. We live in a consumeristic society, and this impacts us in ways far greater than we realize. You and I are constantly tempted to use and abuse every day, to find pleasure in something or someone, and then to discard it when it no longer holds any value for us. We will get what we want And then we will move on to the next exciting or pleasurable thing. Uh, Even even kids, right? Kids can do this as well. Like, kids, you can look at your parents and you can think, like, they're responsible for giving you good, fun experiences, but then you just kind of put up with them until the next fun experience. But all of us, uh, adults... Kids, like, like we have this tendency in us to want to get pleasure out of something and then just to move on to the next thing and not understand the goodness, the, the grace that's found in these realities. This is why we need to preach the cross to ourselves repeatedly, to be reminded of Jesus' sacrificial love. Jesus has and does love us sacrificially. Jesus' love leads people into comfort. Jesus' love leads people into feeling cared for, feeling valued, being built up. And and if this is not how you experience Jesus, it's it's likely not Jesus who you are experiencing. It's likely a counterfeit. Something or someone else. The end of what Satan does is desolation, nakedness, feeling devoured and burned up. If you find yourself feeling shame and ashamed, that's not Jesus. Because Jesus says really clearly He takes shame upon Himself 
for us. He removes that from us. We might, we might feel convicted. We might feel guilty. And that, that's a good thing. But not shame. Not the devaluing of who God has created. Our pursuit of entertainment, our checking out of relationship with family or friends for other pleasure, an overemphasis on self-care, an indulgence in the pleasures of this world, all of these things will lead us to use and abuse. When what we need to see, what we need to be reminded of is sacrificial love, of who Jesus is of what he has done for us. What we all need to experience repeatedly in an ongoing manner is Jesus' love demonstrated to us, for us, on the cross. Now, it's not just that we experience that, right? The intention is not that we just know about his love. It's that we're changed by his love. Jesus wants to make us like him. So it doesn't end with us. We don't just consume it and it stops there. It's intended to grab hold of us, to make us like Jesus, so then others can see his sacrificial love through our lives as well. Okay, a few points of gospel application for us here as we wind things down. Reminder for us, gospel application is what Jesus has done for us, not what we are called to do, okay? When we walk out of here, we need to remember, we need to be reminded of who Jesus is, not who we are, not all the things we need to do, but all the things Jesus has done for us. So first of all, Jesus will conquer sin in your heart. He will. He will overcome. The sin that you keep returning to that has plagued you for years, he will overcome that. We talked last week about this need for us to let grace seep deeper into our hearts. The reason you keep going back to sin is because you don't know how beautiful grace is. You don't know how good it is. You need to let Jesus' grace seep deeper into your heart. So the call for us then is to look to Jesus, to trust him to change our hearts. But he is the one who is the conqueror, not us. So we trust him to conquer the sin in our hearts, not our ability to be disciplined. Okay? We're not trusting in any of our actions, any of our, uh, the things that we feel we need to do. We trust in Jesus. We trust him to change us, to be everything that we need. Jesus will conquer sin in your heart. Jesus will also conquer sin in this world. Sin that kills. He's going to conquer sin that devalues. He's going to conquer sin that hurts others. He's going to conquer all of the hardship in this world, all of the pain that you see happening in loved ones. Jesus will conquer. Revelation 17 is teaching us this explicitly. There's not a more sure promise 
in this world. It's why we read verses like John 16, 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. Notice, Jesus is telling his followers that they will have trouble. And the reason that he's telling them that is so that they would have peace. Seems upside down, doesn't it? But he's telling them that they will have trouble because he's also telling them that in the midst of those troubles, they can take heart because he has overcome the world. He disarms Satan on the cross, and he will come back, and he will ultimately destroy Satan forever. Jesus will conquer sin in our hearts and sin in this world. And lastly, Jesus is faithful. And he loves spiritual prostitutes like us. You and I are just like Israel. We have made many proclamations about how we're going to get serious about following Jesus, only to turn back to our sin and spiritually fall on our face. We do this over and over. If we're honest, we know we're not faithful. We know we are spiritual prostitutes. We know we're not the answer. Jesus is the answer. He is faithful when we are unfaithful. He came to die for spiritual prostitutes like us. So let's stop posing like we're something we're not. We are needy, dirty, wicked people. I used to have someone in my life who would repeatedly say, I don't like the idea that I'm needy. I don't like that part of the gospel. And the person completely walked away from Jesus because they couldn't get over this fact that they are needy. It's a tough pill to swallow. We are needy people. If you don't feel it today, give it a few years. Go around the block of life a few more times. You're going to get there. You will be in that spot. We are needy, but we have one who loves and dies for people, needy people, just like us. So let's trust Jesus. Let's believe the gospel.